Amen. I want to invite you to come back tonight and enjoy a wonderful evening of worship and praise to God. Again, that begins at 7 p.m. right here in the Worship Center. I'd like to invite you to uh, turn to the text uh, from the copy of the scriptures that you have, either the one you brought with you or the one that's in the pew rack in front of you, to Paul's letter to the Romans. It's that passage that Ben read a few moments ago from Romans chapter 5. It's a classical text uh, of scripture that brings the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, and reminds us exactly what God in Christ has done for us on our behalf and this wonderful gift of God's grace that we've been singing about. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It would be helpful if you had that open in front of you. A few weeks ago, I was sorting through some old uh, photographs, some family albums that Kathy has collected over the years. She's done a wonderful job at at bringing uh, lots of photographs into albums that kind of trace the chronological history of our family together, our three kids. And uh, I just got kind of caught up in the experience. I was looking for one photograph in particular, but kind of got waylaid by just the joy of looking at those pictures and just reminiscing and, and thanking God for his faithfulness to to me and to our family over the years. Um, it was just a blessing to me. It was amazing to me as I looked at those albums and those pictures uh, to recognize that our kids have gotten bigger and I've gotten grayer. And uh, my kids have lost their baby fat and I've gained 35 plus pounds. Uh, I wish somebody would explain to me how that all works. But looking back at those pictures was a lot of fun for me. Uh, some of you here this morning are people who love to take pictures. You're photographers. I am not a photog at all. I've never been much of a photographer. I've pretty much relied on my wife, Kathy, to uh, photographically chronicle our family's history all on her own. But I got inspired last summer prior to our dream trip to England and Scotland uh, to go out and buy a digital camera, which I did. I thought that, well, maybe this new technology would help me to be more interested in photography. And so I went out to Best Buy, bought a new camera last summer, and and I pretty much did all the picture taking on our trip to England and Scotland. However, there's one problem that I've got this great digital camera, and because I'm a bit technologically challenged, the pictures are still stored in the camera, and I, I don't know how to get them out. So for me to be able to share them with you, you'd have to come up really close and look in this little viewfinder to see the lovely shots that I've taken, and I think you'd be fairly impressed with my photographic ability. But I've got to find somebody uh, who will take pity on me and help them get out of its storage compartment in this little digital camera. Well, I got to thinking about taking pictures, and I, and I began to wonder what would happen if somehow we could put a mysterious lens on this digital camera, and we could take a picture of your soul. We could, we could get beyond all the physical stuff of you and get to the heart of you. Get right down to the inner being, your core, to what we call the soul. And right now, with that lens, we could take a snapshot of your soul. 
I'm wondering what kind of a picture would result. Would we see something that's fresh and and vibrant and healthy? Or if, as we took a picture of your soul, would we find uh, that picture to uh, that your soul to be tattered and, and torn, weary, undernourished, worn out? Would it be a picture of robustness and vitality? Or would it be a picture of something that's looking older beyond its years? Would we be able to distinguish characteristics of health as we took a picture of your soul today, or would we see something that looks rather unhealthy? I wonder, what would we see if we took a picture of your soul? I wonder if we could take a look at a family album of pictures of our souls and look back and see times when our soul was childlike and innocent and fresh and filled with faith. Maybe in that album of our souls there would be pictures of our souls that would show that that there was darkness and, and there was a time of shriveling and dryness. Maybe as we look at that album, we would see times when, when we saw the transforming power of God at work in our life and, and making us new and discovering God's love and having hope burn brightly within us. Maybe we could have some kind of before and after picture taken of our souls. What we looked like before we came to faith in Christ and, and now after experiencing the grace of God, what we look like now. Don't you love those before and after pictures? You know, the ones of, of somebody who's discouraged and overweight and depressed and out of sorts, and then they take the special vitamin and or they buy exercise equipment or uh, whatever the secret ingredient is, and they're the picture of vibrant health. Their bicycle tires are filled with air. Everything in their life works out after they take whatever the special product is. Just take a spoonful of Vitamita Vegemin and you'll be all right. It's that kind of before and after picture that the Apostle Paul gives us here in this part of his letter to the Romans. It's a stirring message of God's grace that tells the story of what we were like before experiencing God's grace and now what we're like after having experienced His gift of grace. It's about His transforming us and restoring us and renewing us and and changing our souls, changing the picture of our souls. And as I read this portion of chapter 5 in Paul's letter, it seems to me that there are four words that come to the fore that Paul presents in his argument to describe our spiritual condition apart from Jesus Christ. And here is God's estimation of the human race as each one of us comes into this world. Paul says, beginning in verse 6, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Jump down to verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then jump down to verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? There are four words that jump out at me, and and I want to bring those to your attention this morning. The four words are these. Powerless ungodly, 
sinners, enemies. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Now, that's not a very nice picture. In fact, that's a fairly dark and gloomy picture of the condition of our souls apart from Christ. Those four words, powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies, describe what you and I were by nature from the point of our birth. They describe the spiritual state of every person who is living apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And what I want to do for a few moments is to attach a little phrase to each of those four words that describe our condition apart from Jesus. And each of these phrases is just a simple way to bring these verses in 6, 8, and 10, to bring these verses home to our hearts this morning. And together it gives us a picture of the impossible problem that you and I are facing if we are living our lives apart from Jesus. So let's look at the first word. The first word is powerless. The phrase I want to attach to that first word is this, that we are unable to change our basic nature. That's the basic meaning of powerless. Some translations use the word helpless instead of using the word powerless. It says that we are helpless. The King James Version says that we are without strength. The Living Bible renders the phrase this way. It says that when we were utterly helpless and with no way of escape, they all have the same uh, connotation, that we are helpless, we are powerless. The word actually itself means Weak and usually refers to a physical condition of weakness of the body. But Paul brings it over into the spiritual realm and takes a picture of our souls and said that before we come to faith in Christ, before we surrender our lives to Jesus as our forgiver and our leader, this is what we were. We were powerless, no spiritual power, no strength, completely frail and feeble. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to see myself that way. I prefer to see myself as being rather self-sufficient, capable of doing what I want to do. I don't want to be viewed as being powerless. I want to control my destiny. I want to be in charge of my future. But the Bible declares this, that if we are living apart from God's grace and His gift of eternal life in Jesus, that we are absolutely powerless to change anything about our life. I can't be a better person. I can't will myself into being a better person. I can't add on some good works. I can't somehow read the right books or listen to the right CDs or attend the right seminars or workshops and change myself. Somehow I'm too weak. I'm helpless to do that. I'm frail. And Paul is saying that as we stand before this holy God that you and I are powerless to change our basic nature. And if, it, if our soul is to be changed, the power has to come from a source outside of ourselves, that we are powerless, unable to change our basic nature. The second word, the word ungodly, that is, that we all live as if God did not exist. Again, in verse 6, when we were still powerless... Christ died, Paul says, for the ungodly. One Bible commentator explains this word ungodly as being mighty in evil. 
And it's precisely because we can't change our basic nature, our first problem, we live our lives as if God did not exist. And there are a lot of people out there today, maybe some in this room, who are living their life as though God is not a part of the equation. There are people all around us today who are inventing their own sense of morals, of right and wrong, who are living to please themselves, who are going their own way, who are doing what is right in their own eyes. One of the sad commentaries on our culture today is that there is a complete absence of absolute standards of truth, right and wrong. Everything has become very relative in our world today. And we set ourselves up as God, and often we find ourselves worshiping ourselves. To be godless, to be ungodly, doesn't mean wallowing in sin like a pig wallowing in mud. It, to be ungodly applies as much to a good moral person as it does to the mass murderer. To be ungodly is something that's part of all of us, our fleshly nature. And fundamentally, the Wall Street tycoon is just as godless, is just as ungodly as Jeffrey Dahmer. We may, uh, we may change it up a little bit and be a little more socially appropriate, but in our hearts, apart from Christ, we are ungodly. That is to say, we are mighty in evil. And if you need more evidence of that, if you need to be further convinced of that truth, honestly, come see me. Because I can give you uh, events in our own community, some this past week, that, that disturb and remind us that we are mighty in evil. We are ungodly people. Christ died for the ungodly, for people who live as though he did not exist. The third word is the word sinners. We find it in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still, what's the word he uses? Sinners. Christ died for us. That word sinners is kind of an old-fashioned word. You don't hear it a whole lot anymore. But it's a good word that, that really comes across and, and, and makes the point that we all miss the mark. That really is the meaning of the word sinner. It brings forth this picture of an archer who takes aim at the target and pulls the bowstring taut and then releases it and shoots the arrow, but misses the entire target altogether. The archer thought he was going to hit the bullseye. That's what he was aiming at. But something happens and he misses the mark. The arrow never hits the target. And no matter how many arrows he may shoot, the result is always the same. He always misses the mark. And that's what it means to be a sinner. To miss the mark. And there are a lot of people who are trying their best, their dead-level best. They're trying to, 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 to stir up and dig up deep within them to be a good moral person, to be a good dad, to be a good mom, uh, to be a good citizen. But, but Paul reminds us here that our problem is this, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are absolutely powerless. We are feeble and frail. We are without strength, with no way of escaping. We are ungodly. We are mighty and evil. And we are always missing the mark, trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, always missing the mark. And that's how Paul describes the picture of our souls before we come to Christ. 
he describes how far we've gotten away from God. And we see evidences of that all over in our society and world today. Now, we have a tough time with that, too, I think. We're willing to admit that we're sometimes weak. We're willing to admit that sometimes there's a dark side of us that raises its ugly head. But we don't like to call ourselves a sinner. We would rather see ourselves as sometimes being morally challenged or sometimes socially maladjusted. Or sometimes it's not really our fault, it's somebody else's fault that we are the way we are. But Paul says, don't you recognize how dark you are? How spiritually bankrupt your soul is? And if we were to take a snapshot of your soul, if we would be able to cast it out on the billions of people who live on planet Earth, we would find that the picture of the soul's condition is dark, is powerless, is ungodly, is full of sinners. The poet Carl Sandburg said, There is within me an eagle that wants to soar, but there is also in me a hippopotamus that wants to wallow in the mud. Is it not true that it is the hippopotamus in our life that damages our soul, that that prompts our choices, that brings us to walking away from God and His plan for our life. One final word and phrase describes our life without Jesus. Paul says, you are therefore God's enemies. That is to say, you are hostile towards God. Verse 10. For if, Paul writes, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God's enemies. Paul's describing our soul's condition, the snapshot of our soul. He's saying you may be able to to accept the fact that your soul is weak and undernourished. You may be able to accept the fact that at times your soul is dark, that evil exists in you. But you have a hard time swallowing the fact that you're an enemy of God. You say, Rick, I'm not an enemy enemy of God. I've never picked a fight with God. I don't have any quarrels with God. But I want to remind you this morning that, that with God, you are either for Him or you are against Him. You are either God's friend or you are God's enemy. There is no middle ground. There is no demilitarized zone when it comes to Jesus Christ. You are either a friend of God's or you are His enemy. Now, I know a lot of people want to paint with a broad brush stroke, and a lot of us are functionally universalists and say, God, God's so so loving. He's just in the end. He's going to let everybody in. That's the kind of God of love I serve, they say. But that's not the the God that you see in the Bible. The Bible says that, that either we're a friend of God or we are his enemies. And Paul says that before you came to faith in Christ, you were God's enemies. You were at war with God. So let's summarize what we've discovered so far. Paul says you are powerless, that is, that you are unable to change your basic nature. You are ungodly, that you live as if God didn't exist. That you are a sinner, you're constantly trying and failing, but always missing the mark. And you are an enemy of God. You're at war with God. You're hostile toward God. And this is God's judgment, not just on one or two of us. This is God's judgment on the entire human race. And no one is excluded. Paul says in in another part of his letter, he said, for all, that includes us all, 
For all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. That means you and I and others, all of us in this room and in all this world, search the four corners of the globe and you will find no exceptions to this biblical truth that all of us are sinners. We are all by nature powerless, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. And you may say, well, I don't accept that as being true. It doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. Because the Bible says it is true. This is our soul's condition. You may say, I'm not ungodly. I'm not God's enemy. I, I, I know lots of people who are worse sinners than I am. But God's word washes all those limp excuses and objections away. The truth is that based on the word of God, this is our soul's condition. This is the before picture of our soul's snapshot, that our condition is hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. Now, for just a moment, I want to turn to the other side of this and help you to see what God's incredible solution is to our problem. In verses 7 and 8, Paul reveals the unearthly nature of God's love. God's solution to our problem, it is so unusual that it goes beyond human comprehension and reason. We could never think it up on our own. Only God could think this up and conceive of this solution. And, and God's solution can be summarized in two statements that we find here. First in verse 7, that is to say that, that God went far beyond what we would ever do. In verse 7, he says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I want to boldly proclaim to you this morning a, a great gospel truth that God has done in Jesus Christ. He has gone far beyond what you and I would ever do. Let me prove that to you. Here's a good question that you can discuss over lunch today or at coffee break tomorrow morning. If the chips were down and the moment came and in a split second you had to make a decision, how many people would you be willing to die for? How many people would you be willing to give your life for without reservation, without hesitation? Let's say you and your son are eating in an Italian restaurant in North Carolina when a gunman comes in and begins to shoot randomly and fire at other people who are dining in that restaurant. What would you do? Would you duck under the nearest table? Would you reach out and attack the gunman? Or would you somehow shield your son? For James Kidd of Wheaton, Illinois, the answer came in a split second. He was visiting his son who was stationed at Fort Bragg. They decided that they would try an Italian restaurant near the base. While they were eating their dinner, a gunman burst in and began to randomly shoot other diners. And when it was over, 11 people had died, including James Kidd. For in the confusion, James Kidd had made a split-second decision to shield his son from the gunman. And James Kidd was shot in the back of a fatal gunshot wound. His widow said, Jim was a good man, a good father, and a good husband, and he died saving his son. 
What more can you say about a man than that? So in that second, he chose to die for his son. Would you do that? Your daughter, your spouse, your good friend? So how many people would you die for? How many people for how many people would you lay your life down for them? A handful? A few? Your parents, your children, your husband, your wife, perhaps one or two very close friends, probably that's about it, a very small circle of people. And and Paul's argument here is this. He says that that all of us would die for a few other people, close friends, people that we love and care for, people that we greatly admire. The circle is small. But Paul says, listen carefully to what he says in verse 7. God's love is not like our love. God's love is much greater than our love. God went beyond what we would ever do. We would never think of what... He did for us. What did He do? He did what we would never do. Verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the Gospel. That's the good news of God and Jesus Christ. And I know we like to emphasize the, the, the words Christ died for us, but I really think that the, the emphasis is on the first phrase, while we were still sinners. Here's the amazing part of it. That Christ died for us, not when we were all cleaned up and washed off and ready to go, but Christ died for not good people, but Christ died for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died while we were still powerless and still enemies of God. Christ didn't die for His friends. He died for His enemies. He died for those who crucified Him. He died for those who hated Him. He died for those who rejected Him. He died for those who cheered and chanted as they drove nails into His hands and feet. Christ did not die for good people He died for ungodly people. He didn't die for saints. He died for sinners. He didn't die for His friends. He died for His enemies. He didn't die for people who loved Him. He died for people who hated Him. He went beyond what you and I would ever do. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. We would never do anything like that. We might die for our friends, but never for our enemies. But that's what Jesus did for us. And the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, historically recorded 2,000 years ago, to me, my friends, by faith, I accept it as the final proof of God's love for me that while I was still a powerless, ungodly sinner, an enemy of God, that Christ died for me and for you. And all you need to do is accept by faith the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ and open your heart and life and trust Him as your forgiver and accept Him as your new leader. Does God love you? You can bet He does. He proved it when He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins. And our impossible problem 
that we were powerless, ungodly sinners, enemies of God. Our impossible problem was solved through God's incredible solution in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. How do we fix ourselves spiritually? How do we get from becoming God's enemy to becoming friends with God? Do we take some special pill? Do we go to some extreme behavioral modification plan? Do we go away to a spa and nurture our inner self? If you go back to the verses that we've just looked at, there's only one solution. When we were powerless, ungodly enemies of God, Christ died for us and extends to us the free gift of eternal life. And Paul is saying, this is how you were before you came to Christ. But now here's the aftershot. This is what you are. now. You've been reconciled to God. There's peace with God. No longer an enemy, now a friend. Peace within, peace in your heart, and peace with God. You see, friends, it's not about your maneuvering. It's not about your cleaning yourself up. It's not about you getting your act together. It's not about you recognizing that spiritually you're a bit unsettled and you should do something about it. It's taking a step of faith, opening your heart and life, acknowledging your sin and saying, God, I'm always missing the mark. I'm forever shooting for the target, but there's this dark, mighty evil in me, and I'm powerless to do anything about it. But I praise you that you sent your son, Jesus, who can solve my problem. And you can have peace with God. And the Bible portrays God as a passionate pursuer of peace. The one who desires to have a relationship with you and me. And I want to say to you today, friend, that I don't believe that you are here by coincidence. I believe that from the very foundation of the world, God knew that you would be in this place on October 14th, 2007. And he has made a divine appointment with some of you today. And for some of you today, the Holy Spirit has been pulling and tugging at your heart for a long time. And he's drawing you to the Savior, to Jesus, to trust Jesus as your forgiver and to accept him as your leader. And now the choice is up to you. You know your heart's condition. You know your need. The question is, what are you going to do about it? If we were to take a picture of your soul today, what would it look like? Would it still be in that before state? Powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. Or would it now show the aftershot? Having received God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, trusting in the finished work of Jesus. What shape is your soul in today? I have people tell me all the time, Rick, I want to be better. I, I don't like some of the choices that I'm making. I, I don't like keep, to be keep tripped up by some of the issues of my life. And I want to say to you, friend, your soul's snapshot will never change until you finally surrender to Jesus and say, I want you to be my forgiver and my leader. 
And some of you need to do that today. And I'm going to give you that opportunity. As we pray this morning, if you've sensed the Spirit of God speaking to your heart, Brent's going to come and sing a song. And and I want you to just use that song as your response this morning. But I want to pray with you first, and then Brent's going to sing. And then we're going to go on our way and enjoy this day. If the Spirit of God has been speaking to you, I invite you right where you are to open your heart and life up to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for you, who wants to give you peace and make you a friend of God. And you can do it right in this moment if you'll surrender your life to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we know you're in this place. We've sensed your presence and your your grace flowing here today. And I'm convinced, Lord, that in this room there are some individuals who who are still in that before shot. They are, as Paul has described, powerless, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. But today, Lord, we want to make a change in that. And as you take a shot of our soul, Lord, we we want to acknowledge our sin and, and the darkness of our soul. And we want to invite you, Lord Jesus, to come into our hearts and lives. Will you, Lord Jesus, by your grace, set us free? Will you save us and rescue us? We believe that you are the Son of God, that you paid the price for our sin. And we step away from our sin and we trust in the work of Jesus for us. Lord, come into our hearts and lives today. Lord, some of us in this place may be wrestling with some issues or with questions and we're still seeking. Will you reveal your truth to us and help us to understand that there's no other way but to surrender ourselves? Will you come in and and renew our souls? Remind us of your love for us and the difference that the cross of Jesus makes when we go there. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Will you speak to our hearts now, Lord, in these private moments as we wait before you? Let us do, Lord, what in eternity we wish we would have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus, I surrender all to Him. I freely give. And I will ever love and trust Him. In His presence daily. I humbly 
perhaps you're here this morning and you have made that spiritual decision to surrender your all to Christ. Maybe it's the first time you've ever done that. I'd like to know about that spiritual decision because we'd like to encourage you in your new walk with Christ. Perhaps it's a repeated time. You're rededicating your life and making a fresh commitment to the Lord Jesus. I also would like to know about that. Uh, earlier in the service, uh, some of you who are guests today filled out this card. And, and if today you've made an, a spiritual decision, would you let us know about that and take that card and drop it off at the table in the lobby? If you've committed your life to Christ or rededicated your life to Christ, we'd like to know about that. If you just drop that off at the table in the lobby, Ben and Roy and Christine will be there along with other ministry volunteers. Perhaps you're here today and you're still searching, you're still looking for truth, and that's perfectly okay. And, and you'd like to, to ask some questions. You'd like to have a spiritual dialogue and conversation with someone. Uh, we'd like to, to meet you and, and set up a time when we could talk about spiritual things, that you can search the truth of God's Word. Perhaps you're here today and, and you've made a commitment to Christ, but you don't know what the next step is. We want to put a resource in your hand called How to Begin the Christian Life. It's one of the very best books I've ever found on the foundational steps that you and I need to take in our early walk with Christ. I would encourage you to stop by and get a free copy of that at the table in the lobby. Perhaps you don't own a Bible and you're saying, I want to learn more about Jesus Christ and his plan for my life, we would be happy to place a Bible in your hands this morning to take home as your own, to read it and to search God's word and find the amazing truth of God in Jesus Christ. All of these resources, along with people who, who will listen and help you, are at the table right out there, there in the grand hallway. They are, would be delighted to see you. If you're a guest with us today, we'd like to have that card. And if you would just drop it off at the table, our ministry volunteers will gladly take that from you. We're so pleased that you've been here this morning. Trust that you've sensed the presence of God in our midst. I invite you to come back tonight at 7 for a wonderful evening of worship. Would you stand together? Pastor Ben's going to come and close us in prayer, and then we'll be on our way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gentle truth and reminder this morning that our soul is desperate for you. That without you, we will continue to miss the mark. Without you, we are powerless and hopeless. But thanks be to God. You loved us, and your grace shines down to us, and we have Jesus Christ. So help us today and in the days ahead to continue to surrender to you. Give us the courage to do that in our hearts and in our lives, and to see our soul changed as we give ourselves to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.